turning in God's word then to Judges in chapter 3 and looking together at this chapter this morning. In Judges, we've been thinking of life lessons from the Judges that we studied and we come to think of three life lessons from the three Judges in this third chapter. Hamish Harding who most of us have probably heard of in the recent weeks, but probably know nothing about this individual. He was one of the five who died in the Titan submersible at only the age of 58. His full name, interestingly, includes the name Livingston. His name is George Hamish Livingston Harding. But this little-known man to us probably was a Cambridge graduate, and he had an incredible life. July 2019, he broke the record for circumnavigating the earth via North and South Pole in a jet in 45 hours. In March 2021, he went on a voyage to the deepest point in the world's ocean, 2.8 miles down. He took Buzz Aldrin to the South Pole, aged 86, in 2016. He was named a living legend of aviation last year. A man of incredible experiences and gifts and ability and yet little known to us. And so we come to this third chapter of three judges who also are little known to us. Little known perhaps because there is little about them in the Bible. Little known perhaps because we do not remember their names well or easily. They are part of a group of judges within this book, generally called the minor judges, just as we have major prophets and minor prophets because of the length of the books. So we have major judges about whom more is written in this book, and then these minor judges about whom little is written. And today we're thinking of the, the minor judges in the book of Judges, eight of these, three in chapter 3 and five in chapters 10 and 12. Let's think of these three minor judges, Othniel, Ehud and Shamgar, and the life lesson that emerges from the account of these judges. Othniel then in verses 5 to 11 And he gives us the the life lesson of which we've touched on in their studies in Samson of spirit-empowered living. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. We know about Othniel, don't we? We know about that amazing challenge which Caleb gave that anyone who would conquer Kiriath Sephor, it's recorded in chapter 1 of Judges, he would give his daughter Agnaz to be his wife. And, and it's not as harsh or as cruel or as unloving as we might anticipate. I'm sure every father of a daughter here has a list of things that he hopes his son in law will meet. And Caleb was no different, but he went public uh, with his list of qualities. He wanted someone in this challenge who was 
physically powerful for his daughter. He wanted someone who was a leader and could lead a troop against Kiriath Sefer. And he wanted someone who was a man of faith, who would catch the vision of God to conquer the promised land. And in these, this challenge of Caleb, these three qualities of physical power, of faith, and of leadership were evidenced. Othniel rose to the challenge. Othniel conquered Kiriath Sefer. And Othniel took Caleb's daughter to be his wife. But that was a while ago. And time had passed. And Israel had sinned. The king of Mesopotamia had conquered through God's providence and chastening his people. There was Othniel. With that former experience. With that leadership ability. With that physical prowess. Lying dormant within the nation until the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and gave him this position of leadership and, and brought the people together after him. And Othniel led them in conquest against their enemy. Now, their enemy has a name which is emphasized in the text. It is emphasized in three ways. Kushan Rishathiem. It's a long name. It's a name which is mentioned four times, twice in verse 8 and twice in verse 10, either side of Othniel's conquest. And it's a name which has a, a, a significant meaning. It means double wickedness given either by those whom he oppressed or taken on by himself. Double wickedness. But against this tyrannical, despotic, cruel leader, the Spirit of God empowered Othniel, and he triumphed over him and brought the people from their captivity. Verse 10 says about Othniel, that his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishathiam. His hand, the hand of Othniel, but it was empowered by the Spirit of God. Earl Frank Palmer, an American expository preacher in North Carolina, died earlier this year at the age of 92. Fascinating man in, in many ways. But one of the outstanding features of his life was he served God to the very end. In his retirement, he set up a, a foundation, the Earl Palmer Ministries, to support young expository preachers and young theologians in the ways of Christ. Then his word. And here is Othniel, older now, maturer now, in retirement now perhaps, and God's Spirit comes on him and uses him to lead the people to victory. And we all have gifts, 
We all have abilities, perhaps some are good at math, some are good at science, some are good at English, some are good at art, some are good in public, some are good in private, some are good with reasoning, some are good with sympathy. But we need the Spirit of God to come on us, to give us the desire to serve God, and to give us the opportunities to serve God. Here is Othniel with his experience, with his ability, but the Spirit comes on him and gives him the the desire to lead the people against this king and gives him the opportunity by gathering around him an army in support. The name of this king speaks into our time, doesn't it? Double wickedness. Kushan Rishathian. I'm sure all of us will agree that a time in our society and our lives is a time of increased wickedness. And I want to apply this double wickedness to the temptations for ourselves and especially for our young people that are outside our homes but are also inside our homes. It's a time of double wickedness. And this was, this was brought out in an example in the recent arrest of Joseph O'Connor, the 24-year-old hacker. He was stationed in England and then his mother, a lawyer, took him to Spain to, to get him away from the influences that were around him. He was bullied at school and so he spent a lot of time In his room, uh, he would game night and day. His mother tried to address this addiction uh, to gaming, uh, but he went on hunger strike and she had to give back his computers. But she justified it in her mind, she she says, by, by thinking that by being in his room, He was being kept from many of the evils in our society. She says he was being kept from drugs. He was being kept from alcohol. He was being kept from bullying. Those dark things in his world outside the home, he was being kept from. And he was inside the home. But she says how wrong I was. Because inside the home, He was badly influenced by other online hackers and he became part of a group which stole $800,000 from company accounts. The double wickedness. Outside the home. Inside the home. Othniel was up against it. Israel was up against it here. We're up against it as parents, as children, as young people. And what is it? That will enable us to overcome the Spirit of the Lord. As parents, as a congregation, we need to pray for the young people of our church. As Jesus prayed, not that they will be taken out of the world, but that he will keep them from the wicked one. Othniel. The spirit-empowered living. Secondly, Ehud in verses 12 to 30. The God-honoring living. Fascinating, wonderful, humorous account here. And it's meant to be humorous of Ehud. 
uh, taking on this fat ruler of, of Moab. And the humor is all over the story. The, the people, the servants waiting outside, not wanting to disturb uh, the king. And then Ehud escaping away by the time they go and find him dead. But what drives this, this whole story here? What drives the actions of Ehud, this, this minor judge, is, is I, I believe, a desire to honor God. And this is brought out in, in two ways. And then it comes to us in our life and it challenges us and encourages us in our place, in our society, in, in our street, to honor God. The first way that, 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 that motivates him to honor God is this reference to, to tribute that we have in verse in number, number 18. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute. And you see how it's, it's mentioned in verse number 15. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon. In verse number 17, and he presented the tribute to Eglon. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, th- this, is, this is a point that's, that's emphasized in the text. And, and, and what is significant about this is it's the same word that's used of the, the grain offering that's given to God. So in Leviticus 7 verse 37 and Exodus chapter 30 verse 9, this word tribute or offering is used of the people gathering a section of their crops and giving it to God. And the idea seems to be here that what they would have given to God, they're being forced to give to this oppressing king of Moab. And this irks Ehud. They're doing it for 18 years. Every year. What they should have given to God... They're giving to this despotic king the tribute, the tax being brought from them. That drives Ehud to, on this 18th year, form a plan to end this dishonor to the living and true God. It was God who gave them their harvest. It was God who should be honored and respected and worshipped. But instead, this foreign king has invaded their country and is demanding from them honor and worship and submission. A second thing which drives him is the idols. And again, this is mentioned and emphasized in the text. Verse number 19 he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. And the idols here seem to have been set up by the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites who had come and conquered the land of Israel at this time as a judgment by God. They were irked that Israel had taken over their land when they entered into the promised land. They had disrupted their plans and schemes and country and now here was a chance to get it back. A payback time for the Moabites and the Amalekites and the Ammonites. And they had set up idols to their own gods within the land of Israel. What an awful situation this was. And as Ehud comes to that place, 
at Gilgal. Perhaps they'd used the stones that were taken from the River Jordan and placed in Gilgal in Joshua chapter 4. And he comes there. The sight of these idols motivates him to return to the king of Moab. And he uses the idols. He comes to the king of Moab and says, I have a message from God for you. Perhaps the, the king of Moab anticipated, well, he's been to Gilgal. He's been to the sacred shrine uh, where the stones are. And he has received a, a message from the gods for me. And so he sends everyone else out of his court. And he rises up uh, to hear this word from Ehud. And that gives Ehud the opportunity to end the life of Eglon. And a great victory and release for the people of God. Here is Ehud. Been driven, it seems, by the honor of God. This tribute which should be going to their God, the, the provider of their harvest. These idols being worshipped in their land. These motivated to this victory. Dutch archaeologists have found what they're calling the Dutch Stonehenge in a construction site within Holland at this time, dating back 4,000 years. Mounds, graves, stones, giving insight into the pagan worship of their ancestors. What a thing in that land which in the 16th and 17th century was devoted to the worship and service of God. And here in Israel, at Gilgal, the idols motivate Ehud to serve his God in this way. We see Christ here, don't we? Ehud, it says, verse 19, himself turned back. What was the plan? Was this always the plan? He went with others. It says in verse in number 18 that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. He had others alongside of him. What was the plan he had? Did he hope to kill Eglon the first time he went there but the opportunity didn't arise? And now he's on his way back home and, and this sight of the idols, it really gets to him and the others go away and he himself goes back. Was that always the plan or was this something that the Spirit of God came upon him and drove him to do. But he goes alone down into the heart of the enemy. And alone, by God's grace, he conquers. And our Savior, our Judge, our Lord Jesus goes down alone into Gethsemane, into Calvary, down into death itself. And by the power and grace of God, he conquers and overthrows our enemies. We are called to honor God in our world. When someone misuses God's name in our presence, do we show displeasure by our words or by our body language? When religious and ethical subjects are mentioned in our workplace, abortion, euthanasia, same-sex marriage, world religion, slavery, addictions, Sunday working, parenting, do we make our way to the water cooler to get away from the conversation? Or do we with boldness and wisdom honor our God in the conversation? Here is Ehud. 
and he honors God in his actions. And lastly, Shamgar in verse 31. Just one verse, but what a verse it is. And commentators have poured over this and given, I think, wonderful insight into this incredible character. And the lesson of Shamgar is maximize our potential for living. Maximize our potential for living for God. Shamgar, an unusual name. Most likely, the commentators argue, because he was a foreigner. Anath is not the place Anath in Israel, but rather the goddess within the Canaanite pantheon, the companion of Baal. And so Shamgar was, it seems, a devotee of the goddess Anath. The the name Shamgar appears most often in Egyptian writings. And so commentators suggest that this was an Egyptian soldier. There was a group of 800 troops uh, which Egypt used to fight against the Philistines. Shamgar, the name Shamgar appears uh, within that body of literature and it's possible, commentators argue, that Shamgar had come from Egypt, had fought against the Philistines in northern Palestine and then somehow he was still around in the land at this time. Perhaps he'd stayed there. Perhaps he'd been converted to the living and true God. Perhaps he'd got a a little croft and was setting up his home and his family in Palestine. And one day, as he's herding his cows with his pointed stick, his ox goad, over the hill comes 600 Philistines. They recognize immediately that there's a foreigner, perhaps an Egyptian, and they circle him. He's no time to run to his home for his bow, for his arrow, for his shield, for his spear, for his sword. He's caught out in the open only with this pointed stick, but this elite soldier. By God's grace, takes them on. Is praised by Deborah in chapter 5. And overcomes the 600 Philistines. Here's a person, a single person. No opportunity to summon an army as Ehud had done. A foreigner, probably. But uses what he has. Uses it to the full. And the text says, just like the other judges, he saved Israel. The Windrush debate continues about the migrants coming to this country in 1948. Much analysis and study has been done on their influence. And one conclusion is interesting. That while from 1948, British-born people have declined in their church attendance, African and Caribbean people have increased in their church attendance. Those from foreign countries serving our God among us here. And Shamgar 
probably the foreigner serving the living God in Israel. As we spoke to the children, challenge for us is to use whatever we have for God. The house we have, the car we have, the gifts we have. Children are young, enthusiastic, carefree, excitable. Use that in your conversation with older members of the church. Adults have developed skills. Some are good mechanically, or gardening, or with business, or with education. Use those skills within the congregation. If you're a teacher, talk to other parents about their children. If you're a gardener, make suggestions for plants to be planted at this time of year. All of us say we'll do it another time. When we get a bigger house, when we get the house decorated, when we graduate from university, when we have more money, when we have more time. But Shamgar didn't have that opportunity. He was caught out, out in the field. All he had was this stick in his hand. But he used that to serve his God. The time for us to serve God is now with what we have in our possession the stage our gifts are at. So Othniel then, spirit-empowered living. Let us pray that the Spirit will work in all of us and motivate us to serve our God. Let's not rest on our past service for God as Othniel could have done. Let us serve him now. God-honoring living as Ehud did. Let us change one thing this week that doesn't honor God in your life. Maybe it's that smutty calendar that hangs in your works office. Tear it down. Stick it in the bin. Maximize the potential for living for God. Think of something you're good at. Something that you're professional at. Experience that. Use it to help someone in the congregation. Maybe it's baking. Bake half a dozen scones and hang it on a lonely person's door. Maybe it's gardening or accounting or listening or talking or shopping or mountain biking. Use your skill in some way this week. Three characters, little known to us, but known to God. He sees us. He values our service for him.